opening to Matthew chapter 16. We began looking at this passage of Scripture last week and uh, made our way halfway through. And uh, we'll look here and we'll also be looking into Matthew 18 a little bit and Matthew 28 uh, this morning. But we'll start in Matthew 16 this morning. There was a, a man who had not attended church in, in many years. Suddenly, though, he began to attend church again with his, his wife and he'd become faithful every Sunday morning for a, a number of, his, uh, of weeks instead of going fishing as his normal habit had been to go fishing every Sunday morning. And he'd been going along one Sunday morning after he had been attending several weeks with his, his wife. The pastor uh, went up to him after the service and said, it's great to to see you coming again. I'm glad you're, you're uh, joining your wife to be in church again. This brings me great joy. The man replied to him and says, Well, well preacher, uh, quite honestly, it's a matter of choice. I'd rather hear your sermon than my wife's. This morning we're going to be back into Matthew chapter 16. We have been talking about what the church is. The most beautiful place on earth. And I have in my, my own feeble way, and you know, there are a number of topics that you address where particularly your, your weaknesses come to the fore, and this is perhaps one, and although it is my most passionate uh, belief and one of the most beautiful doctrines in Scripture, it of course does not mean that uh, that I am perfect in the way that it is uh, it reflects on on me. But the church is the most beautiful thing on earth, the most beautiful place on earth, and that's what we want to continue to talk about. And I hope that we can begin to see in part the beauty. Of that, As we speak to this, the idea that the church is the most beautiful place on earth, we've been shaping and, and moving our way through these four basic thoughts on the way through. And we began by looking at a beautiful prayer for your church and seeing how we need to pray deeply and passionately for our church and what that means for us individually. And last week and this week we began talking about the beautiful plan for the church, and that is, what did Jesus intend the church to be? What was his design? Uh, the reason we're looking at this is because if we don't understand what Jesus intended the church to be, we will not understand what the church is meant to do. And sadly, too often we have not thought so much about what the church is to be, we have spent far more time thinking about what the church is to do. Uh, and this is important. Uh, it's important that we think on these things. And then from next week, we'll start to, to put uh, the, the great doctrines into their place in practice. And that is, what does this, this intent that God have look like in the physical form? What, how does it manifest itself in the way that a church works and operates? And then finally, seeing that progress further to what is the purpose the church, the beautiful purpose of the church. What are we supposed to do and how are we supposed to do it? And so we'll be looking at these things. But this morning we're going to continue and finish that second thought, God's beautiful plan for the church. We're going to look at Matthew 16 and we'll look into Matthew 18 as well. And I don't know why I have some suspicions, but I don't know why these, these passages aren't thought on more often and looked at more deeply than than we do. They are an often neglected passage. Matthew 18 usually comes out only when we have a problem, and usually we take it out of context anyway. So we're going to look at the context, and we're going to see what Jesus intended for the church from these important passages. So let's begin this morning by reading from uh, verse 13 of Matthew chapter 16, and uh, then we'll make our way through discussing it. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? 
Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Let's have a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time to look into your word, to again put our mind on your work in this world, see the beauty of it and the glory of it. May it inspire us, encourage us, and challenge us as needed. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're going to continue to look at Christ's intent for his church and then put it practically next week. But see his intent. As we began this thought on Christ's plan for the church, we began looking at two things and, and two thoughts. We began by looking at the beginning here in this confession, the first few verses, that Christ is our confession. That he is the, the foundation. And he asked those two questions uh, about who he is. And the answer is that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That, of course, builds the foundation for what a church will be and what it is. So we talked about those things, that this confession then draws a distinction between believers and those who do not believe. An important distinction is drawn. We also saw not only is Christ our confession, but from that comes the truth that Christ is our builder. He is the builder of the church. Each and every church, each and every assembly gathering is an assembly of God's people, called by God, gathered by God for his purpose. And because of that, he is the head of each and every assembly. He is the builder, and as we saw, he is the protector. So having talked about those two things that we have seen in this passage, that he is our confession, that he is our builder, we're going to move to the third thought uh, in these last few verses of our text, and that is that Christ is our authority. He is our authority. As we begin considering these things, our main focus this morning is going to be from verse 19 uh, there and then a little over into Matthew 18. But this morning in Matthew 16, one of the things when we first start to think that Christ is our authority, one of the first things we need to consider firstly is this, that we are his ambassadors. We are his ambassadors, which means that, as we have said before, that he is our head. We talked about this some last week and we saw that he is the one who builds his church and that he will build his church. Each and every gathering together of God's people called out by God from the world, gathered together in his name are a body of Christ and he is the head. Now he is the head in the sense that he is not just the figurative head. You know, we have a, a head of state here in Australia. We have the, the governor general here who represents the queen for us. And the queen is uh, our head because she is the queen of the, the commonwealth. But essentially, when it all boils down to it, the queen is really, for us in Australia, just a figurative head. We have a government. We govern ourselves. Um, we make our own decisions. And so there isn't a lot, really, a lot of input or value in terms of how the, the, the country runs that the Queen has. That is not what we mean when we talk about Christ being the head of the church, that he's a figurative head, that it's just uh, an idea, and then we do what we do, and he's just there to, to uh, kind of stamp his authority on it. What we mean when we say that he is the head is that he is living, that he is present, and that he is the active head of every gathering of his people. He calls people to salvation. Then we saw that when we looked at Peter. How did Peter know that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God? God opened his eyes. The Father opened his eyes. He calls people to salvation. He binds them to one another by drawing them together. He authorizes them and he empowers them to serve him. 
There is a good picture of this in the, the last book of the Bible in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 1, we are given a, a picture. Je, uh, Jesus is just about to, through chapter 2 and 3 here, going to give us some letters to seven churches in Asia where he is going to lay out exactly what he thinks of those churches and what they need to do. In the beginning of that, as we're beginning to see the picture of what Jesus is going to do and why he can write these letters, we're given these words that John shows us in the beginning of Revelation. It says in chapter 1 and verse 9, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And here's the picture. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a gold band. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of the mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. There's a picture here he gives us so we can begin to understand how Jesus works and what he does for his church. We're given a picture. Jesus stands there in all of his glory and in all of his power. And he is in the midst of seven lampstands. He tells us that these lampstands represent the churches. These are his churches. He is present in the midst of his churches. He holds in his right hand seven stars. Seven stars are the messengers of those churches. Probably the leadership. But he holds in his hand, so in his right hand, his hand of power and his hand of control, he holds the messengers of the church and he stands in the midst of his churches. Seeing, hearing what they do. He is present and powerfully and actively the head of every church. His word the Word of God is our charter. It is our guide. It is our substance. This is the first reason, or one reason, why the very first statement in our statement of faith has to do with the Scriptures. Our statement of faith says we believe the Bible to be the authoritative rule in all things for faith and practice. That is it. And that's why each and every week when we come here, I do my best to stand before you and faithfully share the word of God. Not my opinions. And although I tell lame jokes uh, at times, I'm not meant to, to entertain, but to give you the word of God. To share the word of God. Because it is our sole rule, our main rule for faith and practice. It is why... In our brief purpose statement, which we refer to from time to time, we state it like this, that we exist to magnify Jesus through worship and the word. 
It's why this church exists. We exist to magnify Jesus through worship and the Word. Now, unlike the Gospels, the time when Jesus was present on earth, Jesus is not physically present anymore and personally present here so we can go to him where he can stand before us and lead and guide us. We can't appeal to Jesus in that form like the apostles and the first church did. Even if Jesus was still on earth, that would be difficult with so many churches in so many places. This is one reason why Jesus tells us he had to leave so that the Spirit could come, so that he could indeed be the head of his church. So, the question then arises, this is the question that Matthew 16 answers for us, does anyone on earth have the authority to represent Jesus? to speak for Jesus and to speak on his behalf. Matthew 16 answers that question. Does anyone have the authority to represent Jesus, to speak for him and to speak on his behalf? And the answer from our text is a resounding yes. The church. His gathered people have the authority, have his authority to speak to him. And so that then leads us to another question. How do we know that? And what does that mean? And so that's what we need to consider here. Because as a church of Jesus Christ, he being our head, we speak for him. We speak for him. Here in our text in Matthew 16, here Christ is giving us the authority to speak on his behalf in this world. To be his spokesman to truly be his ambassadors. It is clear, though, that not everyone has authority to speak for Jesus, though many assume they do. There are many who assume they have the authority to speak for Jesus, but don't. And our context of Matthew 16 actually makes that very clear. Because if we go back just before this to where Jesus was uh, involved with the Pharisees and uh, the disciples just before he gives this, What we find is this, Matthew 16 and verse 5. It says, Now when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. And he goes on a little through there, and and the disciples then begin to try and figure out what he means. And so they find out in verse 12 what he means. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, what is Jesus uh, describing for us there? He's saying, here is a group of people who assume they speak for me. And he is telling his disciples, they do not speak for me. So already here, we have a distinction. Jesus is making a clear distinction. There must be somebody on earth that has the authority to speak for Jesus. Who is it? And how do we know? Because clearly there are people who don't represent Jesus, and now he's telling us that there are people who do. How do we distinguish who can and who cannot speak for Jesus in this world with his authority? Firstly, we must unequivocally profess that Jesus is Savior and Lord. That's the foundation we spoke to last week. That is by far the fundamental uh, thing here to profess Jesus as Savior and Lord. Then we must consider how do we identify a true confessor? How do we identify someone who truly is a believer, not just a pretender, not just an imposter? So here Jesus is announcing his ambassadors, those who have the right to speak for him. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20. Now then, he says, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Most of us probably have a good idea of what an ambassador does. An ambassador speaks for the head. Our ambassador for Australia and various places around the world speak for Australia on behalf of Australia. They do not have their own authority, but they have a designated authority. The authority that an ambassador has 
comes from the nation they represent. It comes from the head that they represent. They have the authority given to them. So the church's authority to speak for Christ isn't our own, but it is given by Christ. The authority that a church has is given by Christ. We represent His authority. We speak His truth, not our opinion. We follow His instructions, not making our own way. Say a church has no innate authority. It has no innate authority. It means that the authority that a church has or that is given by Christ to a church can be given and can be removed. And this is the picture that we see in Revelation as we continue. So Revelation chapter 1, we saw the picture. Jesus stands in the middle of his churches, watching, seeing, hearing, holding them in his hand. Then he begins to write some letters, telling the churches what he sees and what he hears and what they need to do. And in the first letter, which he writes to the church at Ephesus, he writes this. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. See, just as Christ builds the church, if that church rejects his authority and begins to do its own thing, just as quickly as he gives authority, he will take it away. That church will lose its power, will lose the authority that it has been given. This church, Cambridge Baptist Church, exists only to speak for God. If we do anything other than that, we do anything outside of speaking through the authority of Christ for him, then we no longer are what God intended us to be. And if that happens, we should expect God to remove his presence and his power. We speak for him. We speak for him so that we can display his gospel. We speak for him so that we can display his gospel. Do you remember how this conversation in Matthew 16 began? The conversation here that we're looking at began by Jesus asking two questions. The first question was, who do other people say that I am? He asked them that question, and they began to give answers. People think you're this person or that person. They think you're like this. They think this. And what was he doing in their mind? He was setting up in their mind a distinction. Here's what other people think. And then he says, all right, that's what other people think. Now, what do you think? And the answer is that true confession. I'm Jesus. He is Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God. There is a distinction made there, an important distinction being made there. He is exposing that there are two groups, people that believe and people that do not believe. And it's on that confession that he builds his ecclesia, his assembly. By definition, ecclesia is marking a boundary. It is a boundary which says, inside this boundary, people believe. Outside this boundary, they do not. It is a clear marker. It says, this is the gathering of people who believe, who truly testify that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. If you are inside this boundary, we can attest to that. If you are outside of that boundary, we are not attesting to your eternal faith. We'll see the authority given to the church is an authority to make that distinction. Choose to see who has the, the authority of Christ and who does not. One of the beautiful things about church, we've spoken about this often, is the unity of God's people that happens in church. But unity isn't the goal of church. Unity is a byproduct of the goal of church. It is a beautiful result of the product of what God has done. See, the church isn't about just holding together people. The church isn't just about bringing together like-minded people. That's any club. That's a car club. That's a footy club. That's a, uh, anything. If you're just bringing people together of like mind to have unity, that's any club. That is just a beautiful byproduct of what the church does, is that it brings unity to people that would not be unified. 
what the goal of the church is, it's about marking off believers from the world. It's about saying, here are the people who speak for God, who stand for God in a world which does not. By doing this, we both protect the gospel and we display the gospel. In John chapter 13, Jesus gives us a mark of how people will know if you are a believer or not. By this, he says, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Now, the mark of a true disciple is not that we will have love for everyone. That's not what he says. Now, in other places, he does say we need to love others. But what marks a disciple, what sets us apart from everyone else, is that we love the brethren. They will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Why will that show that we are Christ's disciples? Because that, to be able to love one another in the bond of Christ's gathering, beautifully illustrates the magnificence and the power of the gospel. That is, people from every walk of life and different background and different place are able to gather together to be one community, to put aside our differences, to cover our sins and the sins of others, to live together in unity, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Something which no other community in all of creation is able to do. Only the church. In community, we display, we act out the glory of God. In his sermons on 1 Corinthians, when he's talking about the unity of the church and what that means, Pastor Mark Dever says this, he says of God, he called them, that is, Jesus called them, the church of Corinth, to forsake divisions because God is one. He called them to forsake sin because God is holy. He called them to forsake selfishness because God is is loving. See, everything that we are asked to do as a body of Christ, everything that God lays out for a church to do, is not for the ultimate goal of unity, is not for the ultimate goal of our own good, but is to display the glory of the character of God. Why unity? Because God is one. Why forgiveness? Because God is love. We display these things because they represent, display God. You see, a church is far more than a get-together for songs and for Bible reading. It is much more important than that. So, we are his ambassadors, and as his ambassadors, we carry his authority. We carry his authority. Remember, I said before, we carry his authority because he gives us his authority. It is not innate, it is given. And that's what we want to look at as we continue on. In our text here, in verse 19, after uh, Peter confesses uh, Christ, and Christ says that he will build his church in verse 18, he continues in verse 19 and he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He speaks here of giving the keys of the kingdom. These are the keys to get in here to the building. Every week, I have a code. I've been given the code so that I can get the keys, open the doors, and let us in. Now, I can't give these keys out. I'm responsible for these keys. Why? Because to hold the keys is to hold the power to let in or let out. And so, by the school giving me the authority to hold these keys, they're requiring from me that I make sure who goes in and who comes out. And I'm responsible for that, aren't I? Because I've been held responsible for the keys. I have the power to let in and let out of this room. That's exactly what Jesus is speaking of here when he talks about giving the keys. To receive the keys is to receive the power to receive in or to exclude. That is, to bind or to loose. 
to bring in or to keep out, to let go. The key is the kingdom. Christ, Christ's authority is given here in Matthew 16 to Peter. In Matthew chapter 18, which we'll, we'll look at uh, a little more in just, in just a moment, but in Matthew chapter 18, that authority which is first here given to Peter is then expanded to the twelve and ultimately to the church. And we'll see that as we look at chapter 18 and chapter 28 this morning. As they go through, Jesus has designated his ecclesia with his authority. His authority, the authority to speak and to act on his behalf. Whatever you bind on earth, whatever you loose on earth, says will be bound or loosed in heaven. The authority here, we'll notice as we look through and we can see here, the authority here doesn't reside in one person. He has not given the authority to bind or loose to one person or to a select group of people. What we see here in these passages is that the authority he gives is to the body, to the church. The gathering of the people have the authority of Christ. It is not held in one or a few. In fact, if we, let's, let's go to Matthew 18, and I'll read a few verses here. Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15. It says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Surely I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two, or, uh, if two of you agree on earth concerning anything, pardon me, anything they, they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. It is clear from the context that Jesus gives us here in Matthew 18 and Matthew chapter 16 that the two or three is not just two or three randomly gathered individuals. So it is wrong... For us to take this passage of scripture and say, I got together with two believers the other day and because we're there, God is in our midst in this kind of power. He's not. This is about the church. Take with you two or three. Where do those two or three come from? The church. If they're not listening to you, where do you go? The body. The church. Because in the body is his authority. Is the right designated by God to decide who is in and who is out, at least as we see on this earth, as best as we are possibly able. We are given his authority to speak and to act on his behalf. So, the church speaks for Christ. That is our duty. It is our responsibility. It is the authority which has been laid on our shoulders. And speak for Christ. And if that's true, if indeed he gives us his authority, what must happen then from there is that he expects us to exercise his authority. If he designates his authority to his body, to his church, he doesn't do that just for no reason at all. He does it so that we will do, as he said, we will speak for him. We will act for him. We are expected to exercise his authority. From these passages of scripture, Matthew 16 and Matthew chapter 18, I want to draw together five areas in which we are to exercise the authority of Christ that we see in these passages as we look through. I won't spend a lot of time to go through them, but just so that we can see them, we can uh, work our way through them. And the first of the areas that we see where we are expected to exercise Christ's authority is this. We are expected to exercise Christ's authority to proclaim and to protect the gospel. That is one of our duties, to proclaim and to protect the gospel. You see, this whole conversation began with what? A confession of who Jesus is. That he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
Why did Jesus bring that up? Because clearly, not everyone confesses Jesus as Savior and Lord. The confession of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is the basis of the authority. And it is on the basis of that confession that Peter and the church are given the keys. The keys directly relate to the gospel. There is an example in Galatians. In Galatians chapter 1, a church has neglected that responsibility. They have not protected the gospel. They have not done what they are supposed to do. So let me find it for you. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 6. I marvel, Paul says to the church of Galatia, that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. What is their responsibility? If anybody comes to this church and preaches another gospel, you put them out. You do not let them stay. You put them out. Peter even had to be confronted by Paul because he was uh, wavering on issues of the gospel in terms of who could and couldn't be in and how they they worked. And he addresses that in chapter 2. Paul even reminds him, he says, even if I turn up to this church and I preach to you something other than what the, the, the gospel is, you are to throw me out. That is the duty of the church, to protect and proclaim the gospel. The second thing we see in our couple of texts in Matthew is not only are we to proclaim and protect the gospel, but we are to affirm those who believe. It's the duty of the church to affirm those that believe, to affirm a credible profession of faith. That is, who does truly confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and who does not. That is part of the binding and loosing. If there is a true confession of Jesus Christ, we bind them in. We bring them in. We open the door with the keys. Come in. If they are not a true professor of Jesus Christ... We use the keys to lock them out. That is, you are not part of this community. We exclude them from saying and speaking for Jesus Christ. Baptism is a formal outward means of that affirming. We went through that when we talked about baptism. What is baptism for? It is saying, I am a believer. And it is the church saying, you are a believer. It's the formal expression of that in Acts chapter 2 and verse 41. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Baptism is the act of one who believes. The profession of faith. It's not an affirmation in the apostles or in the pastor or even in the church. It's not an affirmation. We're not to give an affirmation of just anonymous Christians who say one thing but act another. The church has the authority to publicly declare the fact of their confession as Jesus and Savior. Now notice that there is a difference between affirming and acknowledging. It's one thing to acknowledge that somebody believes, but it's another thing to affirm. The church's duty is to affirm, to say, we see, and you acknowledge Christ as Savior, we affirm that belief. Thirdly, we receive true believers into fellowship. This is an implication of the second, which we just saw, and this is the binding. The binding. This is what happens all through Acts. They hear the word of God. We're told over and over again. The process is always the same. They hear the word of God. They believe. They're baptized. They're added to the church. It's always the same pattern. All the way through Acts. All the way through the New Testament. Submitting to Christ as Lord and Savior. 
Okay, now here's the implication, and this is the implication a lot of people don't like, but here is the absolute, firm, clear implication. If we are going to testify and affirm that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and submit to his authority, then we must, by that very definition, submit to his authority on earth. Otherwise, we're not submitting to his authority. He has designated the church with his authority. If we're going to submit to Christ's authority, we submit to the church. And if the church recognizes a credible profession of faith, then it, of course, has no choice but to affirm that through baptism and receive them into fellowship. Because that's our duty. The fourth is this. To exclude imposters. To exclude imposters, this is the loosing to exclude anyone who profess, uh, whose profession isn't credible or who would do harm to the church. Our duty is to protect the people of God and to protect the gospel of God. And to do that, we need to exclude any that would do that harm, any that would bring disrepute to the name of Jesus Christ. Because if we bind people that will do damage to the name of Jesus Christ... We are spitting in the face of God. They're going to do harm, and yet we're affirming. We're using the authority Christ has given to us to say that they are there. Matthew 18, verse 17, uh, Jesus reminds us there of this very thought. And if he refuses to hear them, that is the two or three, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him to be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. If he's not going to submit, if they're not going to submit, well, then the only thing we have left to do is to say, well, if you're not submitting to the authority of Jesus Christ, then we have to doubt your salvation. Until we can understand that and see that, you're excluded. Paul, Peter does this with Ananias and Sapphira, right? We see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. A man living in sin in the church. The church has done nothing. And Paul says, what are you doing? Put him out. Do not let him stay in the church in sin. Put him out. Over and over again through the New Testament, we see that of people who teach false doctrine. Paul and Peter tell us on many occasions, do not let false teachers stay in your midst. Put them out. We must exclude imposters. That is a hard thing to do. But it is a necessary thing to do. And finally, in this, we must provide oversight. Provide oversight for the believers. To guide, direct, and equip through the word of God. This is why, in our statement of faith, we say that we exist to magnify Jesus through worship and the word and to move believers in Jesus toward maturity and ministry. Because that's our duty, to provide oversight. This is where we come to Matthew 28. In Matthew 28, we read the Great Commission and here again, Jesus invokes his authority. Matthew 28 and verse 18, and Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given, where? To me, in heaven and on earth. And what does he do with the authority that he has? He bestows it on his church. In that authority, go and make disciples. God supplies the overseers. Shepherd the flock of God, Peter tells the overseers, which is among you serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. He provides us with overseers, but then it's not just the pastor's job to oversee and to mature. We also do it by carrying out the one another's of the Bible. To love one another, to encourage one another, to edify one another, to weep with one another. And so, he authorizes us to pass on his authority. This is the message of Matthew 28. To pass on his authority. Matthew 28 verse 18 we read. 
All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. See, this design, this plan, this intent, wasn't meant just for the apostles and then to die out. Matthew 28 tells us that this plan, this design, this purpose was meant to be replicated and replicated and replicated. The authority passes from one to the other to the other to the other as we live under the head of Jesus Christ. Our authority that's given to us isn't just to transmit the gospel. This isn't just about giving the gospel. It's not just about evangelism. It's about continuing the pattern which he began. Pursuing to build churches that represent and speak for Jesus Christ. The church is given the authority to speak for him, to proclaim the gospel and to make disciples. The church then here in Matthew 28 is not only given the authority to speak for him by making disciples but the authority to unite believers together by affirming belief through baptism. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then the church is given the authority to teach and oversee believers, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded. It's the authority to replicate this throughout the world and throughout history. And so... In brief, we describe this this way in our purpose statement in this manner. Cambridge Baptist Church exists to magnify Jesus Christ through worship and the word. To move believers in Jesus toward maturity and ministry and make Jesus known to our neighbors and the nations. All this done in the authority of Jesus Christ as we stay faithful to his word and follow his intent. See, to be a church is a high responsibility. It is a grand and glorious thing because it is to speak for Christ. To be his authority in a world which refuses to acknowledge he is Lord. To be a church is to tell the world this community is God's people. This community speaks for God. And as God's authority in the world, we are to submit to that authority. We do that by confessing Jesus as Savior and Lord, by being baptized to declare that confession and giving ourselves in service and accountability to each other in that church. So what does it mean? What is this church meant to be? We are meant to be mouthpieces of God. We are meant to be a visible expression of God and his gospel. We are meant to show the world who are God's people. We are meant to protect the gospel. So this is why a Christian not submitting to a church is unknown in the Bible. Unseen, unthought of. This is why, with all of this that Jesus has said that he designates the church, this is why he says he will not let the gates of hell prevail. Why? Because it's his place. It's his representatives. It is his church. If you haven't submitted to baptism, then perhaps now is the time where perhaps been hanging around Christendom and not committed and submitted to a church, well then perhaps now is the time. And if you've never confessed Jesus is Savior and Lord, then this church has a message for you. Jesus Christ died for your sins. God in the flesh loved you so deeply 
He was willing to pay the price. To die in your stead so that you did not have to pay the debt of sin. Death. Then he rose again. Rising from the dead. Defeating sin and death for all eternity. Enabling people that will believe in his sacrifice to have life eternal. To know the God that created them. This is the message this church stands to proclaim. It is the message we desire you understand. I hope that you will consider it more, that you will speak to me more if you need to know the answer to any of these questions. Now I understand the context of our sermon this morning was not light nor easy. It's heavy. Because we're talking about eternal things. We're talking about authority. We're talking about God. And in that regard, we must take ourselves seriously. We must take God seriously. And as we move forward as a church, that is what we must do. Before we start to consider what we will do, we must never forget what we are meant to be. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, this is a humbling thing to think of. To come to grips with the understanding that you gather people together in your name to represent you, to speak for you in this world, to declare the gospel, to protect the gospel. These, Lord, are significant things. Things for which, Lord, we know we are not worthy, nor are we in our own prepared for. So, dear God, as we pray for our church, we pray for this. Give us the courage. Give us the strength to do what you want. The insight to see when we are straying into our own ideas, our own desires. So that, like the church at Ephesus, you might not have to come to us, as it were, and tell us to repent of our ways or you will withdraw. Well, Lord, we don't want you to withdraw. We want you to be here in power and glory. And we pray that we would represent you to that end. In Jesus' name, amen.